Church. There we go. That was a good welcome. All right. So as Pastor Nick said, my name is Ryan Gill. Um, My family and I have been owners here at New Passion for several years, and it's my turn to tell you my story, right? So what is my story? Our stories are unique to ourselves, right? We all feel that our story is different. My story could be one of love and sacrifice, but it could also be one of turmoil. It could be one of pain and hurt. So what does that mean, right? Some of us struggle through our stories. Some of us, like myself, struggle more because I was hard-headed and I was a knucklehead. I didn't want to listen, right? I knew everything. And it's easy when you know everything because nobody can tell you anything, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's humbling. And I would like to start off just by saying thank y'all. Thank y'all for listening to my story and for Pastor Nick and the people here at New Passion for just inviting me to to share this story. So real quick, if you will, let me pray for us, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. So, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the chance to be able to share this story. Lord, let us first and foremost glorify you, and Lord, let us not glorify the sins that we will discuss today, Lord. Lord, let us be able to, or let me be able to share your word and that my story may be able to touch just one person that's sitting in here. Lord, because it's just if we can get that one, right? So, Lord, just guide us, open our ears, open our hearts, and Lord, just help us be able to receive a message and continue to leave here and just be disciples and spread your word. It's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I warn y'all, I'm nervous. I've never spoken in front of this many people before. My hands are sweating. I feel like an old 90s Eminem song. So we, um, I talk and I walk and I, move my, uh, I use my hands. And so I'm just going to let y'all know I'm animated, right? I may preach at you a little bit. I'm going to share. When I do get to some, some actual preaching, I am going to be in the book of James. Um, so if you want to get turned to your, in your phone, turn your Bible, we'll, we will be in the book of James a little bit later. So I was born September 9th, 1986, in a little town called Thomaston, Georgia. So let me tell you about this little town. Uh, when I was born, I think it had maybe eight, or if I say 10 red lights, that's probably exaggerating. The cows in the town outnumbered the people like two or three to one. It was tiny, right? Um, I was born to Kay and Greg Gill. I had a wonderful, loving family, and aunts, uncles, grandparents, everybody all around me, right? So what my dad tells me is I almost killed my mama. This is one of several times you hear me say this. But my mom was a very severe insulin-dependent diabetic. She found out some years before I was born that her pancreas just decided to quit working one day. When I was born, the story I'm told is that she went into the ICU, and it was very lucky that mama and baby made it out alive. Um, I'm told that... She had upwards of nine miscarriages before I was brought into the world. I am my only child. I have no brothers and sisters, so I am that quintessential spoiled brat, right? right? And then to think I have five is scary. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I need y'all's prayers just for that, right? So anyway, I had, a, I had a love-filled home, right? Like Pastor Bunch shared his story with us last week, and and I didn't, I didn't know what that early childhood hurt was. 
I knew what diabetes was, and I knew that I always had to know where a Coca-Cola and a Snickers bar was. Anybody that's ever dealt with a family member that has severe type 2 diabetes, you know what, what I mean. At a very early age, I had to know, did she take Novolog or did she take Humalog? I had to know, did she eat a bunch of carbs? And if so, how many carbs did she eat? And when did she give herself that insulin? To top it off, my mom and dad were, were hippies and stoners, and they loved a good time, right? So um, my first concert I ever went to was ACDC Back in Black at the Fox Theater. <laughs> yeah, I should not have been there, so let's not woo that, right? <laughs> I was probably young, I was younger than my 11-year-old sitting here today. But I remember that, right? So we were a close-knit unit. I was an only child. My dad was self-employed. My mom worked in the records keeping at the hospital when she was working. Um, and so we did everything together. I went to Disney World. I went to SeaWorld. I went camping. We went on family vacations. My grandparents' house was just a four-wheeler ride through the woods. Um, you know, my, my aunts, my uncles, we, all, we had the family reunions, right? So we had that family unit that... You know, Pastor Bunch talked about he didn't have last week. My grandfather was a pillar in the church. He was one of the founding deacons of, of a Baptist church there, right? My grandmother was that quintessential little blue-haired lady that sat in the back, and she had her exact seat that she sat in every week, and then the family in front sat in the same place. And, you, just, you know, I would go in there and lay down on the pew, and my grandfather would scratch my head as a young child. You know, so I was, I was engulfed in the church, with my grandparents. I was engulfed in rock and roll with my parents. I'll get more to that later, right? But so with my mom's diabetes, I had to learn really young situational awareness, right? Some of us in this room probably still don't have situational awareness. Um, but you had to know how to react. And let me tell you, when you learn how to react in a life and death situation, Every day of your life as a young child, it puts trauma in your life that you don't realize and that you don't understand because your life becomes one action after another that is always reactive. Y'all, Jesus is not reactive. Jesus can be reactive. We can make mistakes and go to him. And we can, and we can be forgiven and we can confess those sins. But that's the life I knew. I knew sickness. I knew, before I knew how to tie my shoes, how to measure out insulin and give my mom a shot. I knew before, how I, before I could ride a bike, I knew how when she went into a diabetic seizure that you stuck a, to a toothbrush or a hairbrush in her mouth just right so she didn't bite her tongue off and so she didn't get your finger and bite your finger off. At, I think about... And I'm emotional too, y'all, so I might cry. I mean, I forgot to, you know, precurse with that as well. But um, I remember being, you know, I have kids that are about to be five and seven years old. And I'm, as I'm writing my sto story and putting it on paper for the first time, there's things you don't realize. And so I realized, looking back, that I was doing things to save lives when my kids are worried about whether they get to watch some kind of TV show, I'm like, wow, you know, and it, it, it's, it takes your breath away sometimes. 
But again, I can talk about the sickness now, but then I didn't know any different. That was life. We didn't let that sickness hinder us from living a life that we, you know, that I thought was great. One week, we'd spend a week at West Point Lake and, you know, just live it up and be on the boat and be fishing. And next thing you know, I remember one summer, I was nine years old. I hopped in my dad's old F-250 and hauled but an hour because my mom didn't have her right insulin. She had a diabetic seizure and my dad's in the back of the truck making sure she stays alive. And I drove us an hour to the closest hospital at nine. Right? Like, I remember that. And eventually, those memories start overshadowing and taking away from the fact that maybe we were skiing and there was a laughing moment, right? You don't remember those good moments that we had during that week of being at the lake because all I remember is that trauma of being nine years old and having to drive an old 1970s model F-250 an hour and a half to get to a hospital. You know, with that, with that lifestyle, my parents, they loved me, right? Like, I can't say that I didn't have a love-filled home, but I can say that I was doing things that I shouldn't have been. I fell into a life of sin very early. I started using nicotine. Um, I would like to tell y'all earlier than 10 years old, but the, the cold, hard truth of it is I was about six or seven. I started dipping full-time. By teenage years, I had already had a mouth cancer scare. Didn't matter. By 11, 12 years old, I was smoking and selling dope. And I was, buying, I was getting it from my parents. By 15 or 16, 17 years old, I had a cocaine habit that should have killed an elephant. It just, this is the things that, this is the life that I lived. Again, my parents were there. You know, I'll never forget going to work and my dad being self-employed and me being an only child. It was feast or famine, right? So we'd go on these vacations and we'd spend all this money and we'd do all this lavish stuff. And we'd come home and we couldn't pay our bills for a month. We couldn't eat. So what, you know, again, we're in a reactive mode. What do we do? You know, so I, I spoke... Uh, told you about my grandfather. He was a pillar. Well, my grandfather also was kind of the, he was one of the pillars of our family as well. He was well off. And so he was always that crutch for my parents. And I'm sure my dad is probably listening to this today and he, or I hope he does. I pray he does. And y'all will see why shortly, but this is going to cause some contention in my family. But truth is truth. My grandfather was a crutch to my, to my family. He kept my family so that we never really felt what rock bottom was. If my dad went off for a week and squandered money and didn't have money to pay the bills, well, my grandfather would let him sit for a week or so, and right about the time the power, the water, or something was going to get turned off, he'd swoop in, and he'd write a check, and he'd fix his mistake, right? So I never really knew what real repercussion was either, because I had never seen it. I knew what love was, or so I thought. I knew what family unit was, or so I thought. I knew what life and death was. Heck, I lived life and death every day. That was nothing, right? I didn't have fear because you can't have fear and react in the moment. It just, the two don't work. Um, so anyway, 
you know, I'm, I'm this young teenage, probably teenage guy, you know, kid, a little bit older than my 11-year-old is now, and I'm out there doing hard drugs that adults weren't doing. I was doing things that adults were, weren't doing, and so it's just that lifestyle. I'd go to work, I'd work, I'd come home, I'd get a paycheck, I'd go to school sometimes, but I was also that pain-in-the-butt kid that I didn't ever really have to put a whole lot of effort anything, into anything. Things just came pretty easy to me. You know, if I wanted to, if I wanted to learn something, pick up the book, read it one time, maybe listen to it one time, and boom, I was good. I had it. I could skip school all week and literally not go to class for four days in a row, go to class on Friday, take a test, and I would do just good enough on that test that I'd pass it. If I wanted to do a little better, I might crack the book before I walked in there to the test. I could take it from a C to a B. If I wanted to make an A, maybe I studied the night before too for just a minute, right? And so, again, I didn't know what repercussion was either because I had never really applied myself. I had never really, other than playing some sports and different things that I like to think I was good at, um, I had never really given anything my all because it was, I never really had to. It was just easy. Well, you fast forward that a couple years, and somewhere in my high school, early high school days, I tore my ACL, my MCL, ruptured my growth plate, and some other stuff. And that sent me down a path of recovery that led me down a dark path. I started using cocaine more. I started drinking a lot. I didn't care. I was grown at that point. I was running my fam I was helping run my family business, right? If you add, again, this is my story, right? Our stories are always one-sided. So this is from my perspective. I was helping run a family business. I was helping take care of a sick mother. I was mediator because the fights were getting so bad at home because the alcohol and the drugs and the diabetic episodes were happening more and more and more that I was just numbing, right? I was coping. I thought that I was dealing with what was out there. Uh, I'm, I'm good. If you had asked me, I was like a Pharisee. I'd read the Bible through and through. You're not going to tell me anything I don't know. I grew up in RAs. I was a royal ambassador. You know, you can, some, yeah, there we go. Some of y'all remember RAs. I got some head nods. Um, you couldn't tell me anything. And so I eventually, kind of dumb, but my, I failed Spanish and did horribly in another class my junior year of high school and leading into my senior year at a private school that we were paying a bunch of money for, um, I was told, yeah, you're, you're not a senior, you're a junior. You can go take these summer classes and, and these nighttime classes and we might let you become a senior if you get them done before this point. So I was like, okay, ah, let's do it. Yeah, that lasted all of about a week. So I found a cocaine dealer at that class and this, that, and the other, and it went downhill from there, right? So I dropped out of high school, technically my senior year. I had a full-ride scholarship to go to culinary school in Portland, Oregon. Found out about this. They were going to help me get my GED. This was when culinary school, this was back in the early 2000s. Culinary schools were just taking off real big. Um, you know, they promised me the world. I was a naive kid trying to get away from everything I had just told you about. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. So I sign up, get ready to head out to Portland, Oregon, and my mom comes to me and she's like, don't go. She begs me, don't go. 
Fine. Okay. Moved out, stayed in town, moved out of the house. Again, 17, 18 years old, you couldn't tell me anything, right? I knew everything, conquered the world, been there and done that. Move out, quit school, running the family business. I'm literally having to manage the business, manage my parents, make sure I'm a buffer between my, my grandmother, who we called Nanny at the time, uh, who was the, she was the matriarch of our family, right? Um, tra- you know, keep a buffer zone between my, my dad and my mom and her, and we lost my grandfather right about the time that I had suffered the, the knee surgeries and stuff, and so it was just a world of hurt. And so my grandmother, she was, like I told you, she was that old silver-haired lady that sat in the back of a traditional Southern Baptist church, right? She knew a few things. She knew God and Jesus. She knew that she could go to Belk at any time she wants and charge and pick up her, and pick up her outfit. And at the end of the month, the bill was paid for. And she knew in the back of her mind that she was broke and desolate and she had no money, which all three of those, the lady was way beyond that, right? But when my grandfather died, that left, the crutch was gone from my parents. And when that crutch being gone, it got harder and harder. They would use me to go down and manipulate my grandmother to give them money. They would, they would use, oh, we can't pay for Ryan's private tuition. We need this. Or, oh, we need, you know. And so the fall just kept getting a little bigger and, and a little further. And the hole was a little deeper and a little wider. And eventually it got to the point where we had no power. One week, it would be you take a pound of ground beef and you figure out how to cook for a family of three and feed yourselves on a pound of ground beef for that week. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The next week, might go buy a four-wheeler and eat lobster and filet mignon and then have to tell a lie to a bill collector the next day because my daddy wouldn't answer the phone. And they'd call my phone, right? But again, that's, that's what I knew. We were reactive. We, we went through life. That was, you don't know any better, what, else, you know, what can be said? So that year I quit school. I had moved out. I'm running the family business. The drugs and alcohol had gotten so bad with my parents that you just, I mean, you saw them, you saw them. They got out of bed. They did, they didn't, they didn't. You made sure they had some money, and your life was easy. You didn't have to worry about it, right? So you run down there to the house, you give them a couple hundred bucks, you go on about your day, do what you got to do. The next day, you handhold them again. Well, I was no better. I was out there doing the same thing. And so October 31st, 2005, I'll never forget this morning. I come in to come to their house to get ready to leave for work, and my mom is in there, and it's the worst she's ever looked. And I pick her up, and I'm trying to take her out the door to take her to the hospital. And she's fighting me, tooth and nail, punching, kicking, slapping. She's got cigarette burns on her lips from where she had turned her cigarettes around, not knowing what she was doing. And just, I mean, just pale, right? I'm like, fine. A little explicit language. Lay your butt in there and, and die. Whatever. I'm going to work. Somebody's got to feed y'all. I go to work. About 10 o'clock in the morning, I get a pit in my stomach. I go home, and I walk in the house, and I go in the bathroom, and there's my 42-year-old mother dead. My dad is from me to Wayne in the master bedroom in the bed asleep. Doesn't know any difference. 
I'll save some of the details, but it was not something you ever want, uh, as a parent, I ever want my sons or my daughters to see. Um, the next few hours were a whirlwind. Um, I remember my dad being frantic. I remember running around the house and not being able to call 911 because my dad, we, because you had to make sure the paraphernalia in the house was cleaned up so that he didn't go to jail and your mother was dead at the same time. And I was just as much to blame in that cleanup system, right? And so, anyway, the authorities get there, they look her over, pronounce her dead on the scene, um, and the coroner, so, you know, my dad chooses not to have an autopsy. The coroner says that she passed a blood clot. So she was such a brittle diabetic that she had insulin pumps and other, she was a guinea pig for the Atlanta Diabetes Association. And so she used to get all these wonderful new cutting, cutting edge insulin pumps to try to figure them out and data and this, that, and other. And so she was really good at, I guess, from being in records at the hospital of writing out the test trials for him and hey this is what I was doing she was very honest with him in her trials she'd be like yeah I did this drug and this that and other my blood sugar crashed and the pump alerted so she was good with that right but so anyway she had a, a port here to to receive treatment and stuff and different things and she was scheduled to have that port changed on November 2nd 2005 it formed a blood clot according to the doctors what killed her the blood clot pushed through the port on October 31st um, long story short, I lost my mind. What do you do, right? You're an only child, you're 18, you know, you're drugged out, your parents are drugged out, you know, your family at this point is kind of estranged because you've caused some type of hurt or heartache to everybody around you. And so I just packed it up, I said, I'm done. I disappeared. I went to work in oil refineries and worked in oil refineries for a little bit of time. And again, 19, 18, 19 years old, young, you couldn't tell me anything, wound up homeless on the streets of Ohio. I'll, ne I'll never forget getting off an airport, getting off an airplane in June, leaving Atlanta to Cleveland, wearing shorts and a t-shirt and getting to Cleveland going, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous, right? And so, here my dumb butt was, uh, I can't even remember, it was a year later after that, so it was probably February or March, and, and I picked that time to become homeless on the streets of Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a southern, I'm a little blue-eyed, blonde, you know, or blue-eyed, blonde-haired southern boy that ain't never seen snow, y'all, and I'm up there in Cleveland, and it's cold, and I'm sleeping on a park bench. I was looking real dumb. Fortunately, somebody bought me a Greyhound ticket. I hopped on a Greyhound 16 hours and, drove, uh, and rode it back to Georgia where a buddy of mine picked me up from Atlanta. And I went to work in a, a little place called Piggy Park. It was just an old drive-in barbecue restaurant. And they had guys that would run from the cash register to the cars, and I was the guy at the cash register punching the cash register. Did that for a little bit, still was battling with some drug addiction, nothing like before. Um, and Finally, one day, uh, it hit me. Uh, the door got kicked in at my daddy's house, and I was down there. And me and him and everybody in the house went, went to jail that day. And if you've never heard the, the sound uh, of bars when they clang shut, I promise you it's something you never want to hear. Because the real realization set in that day that I was alone. 
They arrested me partly because they wanted my father. Their offer to me was, testify on your dad, we'll let you walk free. Otherwise, we've got you with enough, you're doing five years minimum to the door. Which one you want to do? A lot of money, a lot of heartache and anguish later, lawyers and other stuff, the case was dismissed. Y'all, God has had his hand on me from the word go, and I can see it nowadays because when I, say, uh, when I tell you I should either be dead or in jail, it, there is, that's, that's no exaggeration. I got by on the skin of my teeth time and time again. So let's fast forward. I get out of that situation, and I go to work in cable TV. And in cable TV, again, I was living with a girl who I just, I loved her parents. Her parents were, like, were mentors and still some of my dearest friends. I talk to Miss Deanne all the time. Miss D, if you're watching, I love you, right? You know, y'all helped me through a time that was just unfathomable. Um, but I, I had a tendency to run. I didn't know how to do anything but react. So when you react in a situation, you run, you put in energy. So I put in energy. I went to hustling. I went to grinding. I said, I'm going to do things right. And I started doing, working in cable TV with some people at Tucker Communications. And I was grinding. And I was hustling. And Hurricane Ike came in. And again, I saw an opportunity to run. And so I ran. And I went to Louisiana after Hurricane Ike. And I spent months living in an RV down in Homa Bayou Blue Thibodeau area of Louisiana. And the drugs stopped, but the drinking was heavy. And so I traded one addiction for another. I traded cocaine for working in alcohol. From there, I came home, and my, probably one of my best friends and closest mentor pulled me under his wing and said, boy, you got to do something different. That's where I met my wife, Tamara. We'd stop at this little bar in the evenings, and he'd sit there, and, you know, you never know who or, or where you're going to be poured into, right? And, and he would pour into me. And then eventually, one night, I won't, I won't bore y'all with the details, because Tamara will probably string me up if I do, but I embarrassed myself and made a fool to, to Tamara when I officially decided that I was going to shoot my shot, as some of the younger generation say, right? And so... I embarrassed myself big time. I even did a little wiggle with it, y'all. It was sad. Yeah, you can laugh. It's okay. I, it was sad. Um, but I called the next... I got her phone number somehow. I'm incorrigible, as she told me. I got her phone number. Um, and I called her the next day, and I apologized. And then in the weeks and days and months to come, we'd just call each other, and we'd just talk. She was in school. She had stuff going on in her life. Here I was running from one situation to the next, trying not to face reality. And one day she's like, hey, I got to go turn in a paper. You want to ride with me? I'm like, yes, I finally get to take her out to lunch. <laughs> it wasn't dinner. It was lunch. We get there, and then she wouldn't let me pay. And it's like, come on, I'm, you know, I've got this image in my head of what this macho man adult is, and you're supposed to be able to take the woman out and pay for it and all now nah, she was hard-headed. She was hard. She was just as stubborn as, as I was. And then I lied to her. And men in the house, if you're, if you're young and dating, don't ever tell the girl that you love to clean the house because I promise you at some point later on, if you say the words I do, that is going to bite you in the rear. <laughs> uh, so here I was, just barely 21 years old. Here she is, 
five years older than I am and, and with a kid, and we're both, neither, both of us are broken. Both of us are not in a place where we were even looking for one another, right? And, and we found each other. And now, I've had a lifetime of hurt prior to that, right? And so, I didn't know, I didn't even know what that looked like. I knew how to love fiercely, again, so I thought, right? I knew how to, I thought I knew what being a man was. I thought being a man was, okay, I'm going to put down the things of my childhood. I'm going to put down these addictions and this cocaine and these drugs and this alcohol. Well, all I did then was trade it for work because I went to work every day. And I was at work from sun up to sundown. And then work became my everything, right? And I, as that went, my poor wife, she was, she, she was raising two kids at the time, our oldest, and, and myself. And I think raising me at that point was harder than raising our oldest. Um, and, you know, it just it, it kept going. And, so, and I'm so thankful that she, she dug her heels in and said, no, you're my person. We're going to get through this because this year marks, what, 14 years? And it's... It, and I'm telling you, these last few years have been our best years ever. I heard somewhere the other day, and it just and it resonated with me, I would rather walk through hell with the right people than enjoy one minute of happiness with the wrong, because that's not real happiness, right? So we had our troubles. I was still drinking, and I was stepping into a world that I knew nothing about in cable TV, really. And now we had just had Tristan. And we moved in with her grandmother, and I'll tell you, y'all, her grandmother, I love her to death, but to us and them living in the same house and trying to do life, anybody that has ever moved in with your in-laws to try to save money or hard times, we've been there, we've done it, I know how it feels. However, see the joy in that blessing in that moment, because you will want it back one day, right? So I get a job with a new company, and the reason that's important is because about a year after Tamara gave birth to Tristan, she developed a, a mucinous growth tumor. Now, this is, I, I'm going to give you a little bit of this story because that's her story to tell. And, and you'll see why in just a minute. But she developed a mucinous growth tumor earlier that year. Well, the job I had didn't have health care. I think she had some Medicare, Medicaid, whatever it's called, from giving birth to Tristan. And, and so there was that. But we had no health insurance. I get a job opportunity, what some of y'all may know, it used to be called Knowledgy, now it's Wild Cable. Um, I get a job opportunity with them, making more money, and a part of the offer was that our health insurance would kick in after 30 days, not 90. And I was like, wow. So from the time that she, we found out that she had a mucinous growth tumor on her right ovary to the time it was removed, which was less than a seven-month time span, she looked nine months pregnant. I think the doctor, when the doctor showed me how he, when he removed that tumor, this is what he did. It was like giving birth. It was like six and a half pounds. Um, she thought she was dying. I thought I was doing the manly thing, and hey, I provided health insurance, and look, I upgraded our standard of living to where we're making more money legally than we've ever made before, and this, that, and the other, right? So I thought I was on this path of doing what a man did and provide for his family. But all the while, she's in the background hurting, scared, doesn't know what's going to happen because at that point in time, if, she, if it was cancer and she died, 
she was going to be leaving three kids, not two, because I was still a kid. We went through the, the struggles of corporate America, and, and my travel got more, and I was traveling 25 to 40 weeks a year, and I was drinking even more. You know, I mean, I had a drinking habit that probably preceded me and, you know, in front and behind of me, more than likely, right? Um, and one day she sat me down on the front porch, and she said, okay, how are we going to separate the kids? Like, what do you mean? See, she had been going back and forth to our hometown, which is three hours away from here, every other week to be with Trinity, and she was packing her life up and going there while I was packing up and going here, and then we were always just passing by. And so we were in the same house, but we were just passerbys. It was always talking at each other. It was always fussing at each other. We didn't really hear one another. Here I was thinking I was doing the right thing when she had just gone through the scariest point of her life of thinking she was dying from cancer, and then six months later I pack her up and move her to Augusta, Georgia because we had to. When we had that come to Jesus talk several years ago, right about the time Tirson was born, we sat there and we prayed. And it was the first time I had prayed in a very, very long time. We were dedicating Tearson that weekend. And I remember stepping in and going, I want to rededicate. It's time to rededicate my life. Y'all, Friday the 13th, May 2016, I chose my family over corporate America. For the first time, I chose being a man instead of a selfish child. Now that was still a hard road because see, here's the thing, and this is what I've come to realize in the book of James. And when we ask for knowledge, and in the book of James, we see James, Jesus' little brother, refer to knowledge as her. And Miss Regina, you might string me up for this one. I'm probably going to mess up the Latin. But in this, when we see what wisdom is, God tells us wisdom is nothing more than knowledge put into action. So when I started praying after that rededication, and I would say, Lord, give me wisdom, I wanted him to thump me in the head and here you go. But God said, Ryan, here's a situation. Go walk through it and gain the knowledge because wisdom is knowledge applied. When I said, Lord, help me with my finances, he said, okay, Ryan, you're going to leave corporate America with your cushy little salary job that we thought was cushy and your open credit card, and you're going to step out into faith into a job that, by the way, people don't use the word never. I've eaten it three times now, into a job that you said you would never do again. I said when we met, I will never hold a paintbrush again in my life. Now we have brush strokes. <laughs> yeah, the irony, right? Um, so we pray for these situations. We pray for this knowledge. We pray for this experience. But then we get mad at God when he gives us the situation. You cannot just be given anything. You have to work for it. And y'all, I'm 36 years old, and over the last three years of my life, it's been the hardest time of my life, but it's been the most enjoyable. Because I see joy in my family. I see joy in my wife. I see joy in my situation. 
We were broke as we could be until we said, you know what, Lord, how do we get out of this bondage? And he said, give 10%. <laughs> yeah, it's like, whoa, that's such a huge, give the first of your best. Give the first of your best. That's why Cain killed Abel, right? He gave the first of his best. I was killing God's blessings. I was saying no and limiting God and what we could do because I would pray for these situations and then I would sit on my hands and I would wait and say, okay, Lord, give it to me. And he said, you dummy, I gave it to you. I gave you the situation and you didn't listen. You asked for wisdom, your wife gave it to you. Five years later, somebody else had to tell you for you to listen. There it was. It just took you five years longer than it should have. See, when we read the book of James and we hear about faith, and we hear about wisdom, and we see what Jesus' little brother was doing, you got to be like this. And you got to listen. And you got to open your heart. And you got to be ready for what he puts in front of you. Because he will let you walk through hell and he will tell you, I never said it was going to be easy. I said it was going to be worth it. Y'all, let's pray so the band, as the band comes up. And I just want to thank y'all so much for letting me tell my story. There's more I wanted to say. There's more that I, I had to say. But you don't realize how quick time gets by up here on the stage, right? It's... Uh, it's just been a blessing, and I'll tell you, this blessing is, is why Brushstrokes is here. It's why we're here. It's why we, we made that commitment years ago to give the first of our best, and I can tell you that even with Brushstrokes, we're going to give the first of our best. God has put a vision on us and on myself that I may never— you want to know some hard truth? Let me be real with y'all for a second. God put a vision on my heart so big— that I will probably never see it come to fruition. Now imagine that, swallow that, y'all. God has put a vision on my heart and on our heart at Brushstrokes. We will prime a new generation. We will help this younger generation not have to walk through the mud and the trenches that I walked through. We're going to help lead a generation into becoming the next entrepreneurs, into becoming the next leaders inside the church, into becoming the next political officials that are running around, all from the fruits of the Spirit and from love. Because I walked through those trenches. I slept on those park benches. I did those stupid things. But now I know better because the gospel showed me. And with it, I'm going to do better. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for being able to share my story today. Lord, thank you for this wonderful congregation, for all of these people that are visiting with us today. Lord, thank you for our veterans and that we got to, and that we got to celebrate Veterans Day this Friday. And I know there's a lot of veterans here and, there's a lot of, and I have a lot of close friends that are veterans and we thank you all. Lord, we ask you just to let this message hopefully touch one person, Lord, that hopefully my story can, can be a beacon to someone out there, whether it be online or here in the service today. 
And Lord, I pray that if anyone in this room or watching online is praying for wisdom or praying for whatever the situation, that you open their eyes and you open their hearts and you open their ears to that situation. And that they're able to hear you and they're able to be proactive in that situation and not reactive. Lord, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.